0: Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Web Perspectives. In this episode, we interview Tony Grimes, creator and founder of Pixels here in Calgary, or more informally as many of you guys know, the meetup Pixels and Pints here in Calgary. In a raging pandemic without in-person meetups, how can we stay connected and up-to-date with other front-end web developers and with the industry? What does the future of in-person meetups look like given that this pandemic just doesn't seem to end? Find out as we interview our longtime friend and key community member here in Calgary, Tony Grimes, in this 90 minute episode of Web Perspectives. Hi, and welcome to Web Perspectives, the podcast where we cover the minutia of front end web development, from HTML to CSS to JavaScript. Learn the ins and outs of the industry and supercharge your web development career. Welcome, Tony. Of, uh... <laughs> <laughs> your your lovely locks. Holy crap! So, Tony, we both know you very well. You are actually the reason why I know Mike. So I have you to thank for that. <laughs> and you're the reason
1: I know pretty much everybody in the whole community because you remind me of their names.
2: <laughs> I forget <laughs> them all the time. Oh my gosh, I'm such so bad with names. That's why we have name tags.
0: Yeah. So I I I just I'll some, try to summarize, but. I, I, maybe I should let you summarize what you do, Tony, and the group that you've started here in Calgary and how you started with that. Like, I almost—I I think I missed part of the story of how it got started and how you got to where you are today with this whole Pixels group that we know so well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was trying to think about who your
2: audience was. We've known each other for so long and yeah. we know so many people by first mm-hmm. names. And I don't know if your listeners know who we know. Yeah, it was just this weird thing that I did one day. So what are we at? We're at 13 years now. November will be the 13th birthday, I think. Really? That's insane. Wow. Oh my gosh, you're going to have to do something. That's going to be a prime number.
1: I think like yesterday, it was just like 10 years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember the 10th. I remember doing that one. Wow, that was a good one. Yeah, it's it's kind of a blur now because it's been so long. But I remember it was when the UX guys, when I was trying to track down UX Calgary, at that point, I believe I had an agency, like I had a couple devs working under me at that point. And I was doing the networking thing, as you do, trying to find clients, survive, pay the rent. And I was making the rounds. And this was back in the day when we had Melrose. And Melrose was kind of like the meetup hang down in that little mid-basement. They all had the same kind of format where you show up, you put on your name tag, you do a little bit of mingling at the beginning, and then they have two or three presenters, and they're done, and then you have a little bit of mingling. The way my mind works is I'm not a very auditory learner. I think when I'm in a lecture or something like that, I daydream. I just lose track of things. I blame church (laughs) because I would go there and I would be basically daydreaming the entire time, and it would feel like I would have that same feeling when I went to these lectures and presentations. And I thought, man, it would be really nice if we just had nothing but mingling. We didn't have an agenda or anything like that. And I copied the format of green drinks. So I was also a a tree hugger doing my degrees in environmental biology. And I just loved that format. And I was one of the volunteers for the name tag table and Cody, he was one of the organizers back then. And I invited him up for coffee and he just kind of ran me through the format of green drinks, why it's like that. And he said, yeah, you start at five to catch all the people who are right out of getting out of work and they don't want to go home and they're just already downtown. So you start at five. And it's just mingling because that's the format of green drinks. It was a franchised kind of thing. So you had to follow that format. And you're allowed to do announcements for a little bit at some point in the night. The way that they did it is that it would, it would go until 9. So we would start at 5, go until 9, and we would do announcements at 7 o'clock. This is green drinks. So the people can go home, have a chance to have dinner, come back downtown and hang out. And I thought, wow, you know what? I really enjoy this format, so I'm going to try it with pixels. And I didn't know what it it was going to be called, pixels and pints. So I didn't actually do anything about it. It was rolling in my head for about a year, year Mm -hmm. and a half. I can't remember. And I remember this specific moment where I was. I was sitting in my chair in my bedroom. I remember the layout of my room back then. I had a roommate. And... I'm going to be honest, I was uh, not sober, and <laughs> and it just popped into my head, like, pixels and pints, bam! And I wrote it down, and that's the way I kind of run all of my stuff. Nothing really takes off until I have a name for it, and I've known long enough that you can't fight it. You just, you just kind of think about it. It'll just come to you, and you, you just have to have a pen and paper ready to write it down. So as soon as I had that, yeah, the rest is history. I signed up for Meetup, I started the group. I remember very vividly my first day uh, on that first event and I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And we had name tags that weren't the mailing labels that we do now, they were the kind that had the little safety pin with the plastic and you had the little inserts and you bring them in and out. I learned very quickly that's very expensive because nobody brings them back. So uh, I had to change it. But that on that first one, <laughs> I remember like picking those up, going to Staples and reading all of the meetup instruction manuals and tutorials on how to do a meetup and everything. That was at Vicious Circle, which is foreign concept now. Yeah, and then Mike was at that first mm-hmm. one. I was,
0: yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah, and I believe- I,
1: I do not remember you being nervous at all. To me, you were like the coolest cat in the room, honestly. I
2: was terrified. I was so. Well, so that was, that was one of the things it, it, people didn't realize about me is that I was a very shy and nervous guy. Like, you know, I did crack jokes and stuff. I was a bit of a class clown. That was mostly mm-hmm. like a nervous tick, basically. Yeah. Set it up. We set up the name tag table. I remember we had 12 people show up. That was back in the days when, you know, it was all about bench tables. Yeah, it was in a no- on a November, no particular day that I decided to decide to do it. I was like, all right, we're just going to do it now. Hmm. And the rest is history. Meetup did all the rest of the work. Like it just had a repeating event. And if they didn't have that feature, I don't know if it ever would have taken off.
1: Oh, wow.
2: I'm not one of those people that has the task list. If it wasn't for the Meetup system to force me to do this every month, I don't know if I would have ever done it. And that was it we we didn't even have announcements until much later when we had dj he was working for the open data initiative for calgary and he just mm-hmm. asked one day hey can i make a couple announcements at some point I'm like yeah sure so this was like months later and we quickly moved from vicious circle to the hop and brew so we were upstairs and i just hey stand on this chair and he did the announcements and everybody loved it and like, Hey, why don't we do announcements? And that's when I started doing the, I don't know if we did the call for talent until much later. I remember some call for talents at Hop and Brew. Yeah. Yeah. And I copied that from demo camp. So demo camp used to have those. I can't remember when the call for talent, like the name of it popped in my head. Maybe demo camp was calling it that I, I can't remember that far, it's like so so long ago now. Two things happened there. Number one, I got better at public speaking. And number two, that's when Pixels would forever be mine because it's it's very hard to to hand over ownership of, a, of an event when you have to do these announcements at seven o'clock every month. And it, it just mm-hmm. adds the barrier to entry for anyone else to take over. Cause you know, that's when Dave came in and- Yeah, um, Dave, he, Dave Luke, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And mm. he. this was pre-JavaScript. So he was my co-organizer for a bit. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So he would co-host mm-hmm. the announcements for me. I would be mostly the announcements. He'd be my straight man, I guess. We did that for a while. And then we kind of chit-chatted about how he could start something. Up. i was like, well, you know how I do it. I don't know if JavaScript is the right way to do that. So mm. he, he kind of did his own thing with the JavaScript meetup group and yeah he got oh, who was him? who were his uh core it was eric eric yeah. Chrisky, right yeah eric krisky yeah and, eric was there for sure yeah and one of their lead mm-hmm. one of his lead devs they were all kind mm-hmm. of in cahoots and they started doing the the lecture style and you know he's he was still mm-hmm. you know hanging out with us and yeah, we just kept on doing it. I gradually built up my equipment, had the speakers, and that was Reg, a lot of Reg's stuff. That was back when uh, we, were, we had a little office space. At some point, we had an office space at the old Y, uh, community Ys. Reg and I just kind of moved in together, so to speak, and he had all this gear, and he let me borrow a bunch of his stuff. So kudos to him. He, he kind of got me started on the pro stuff instead of me screaming into a room of staring faces. newspaper yeah yeah in hindsight like it didn't seem like you know i was doing anything special and it, it just i knew going into it that knowing me the only way that i would be able to do it long term is with that format like if i had to find a presenter every month or something like that it wouldn't have gone very long but as it stood all i had to do was just basically book a room make sure I had enough name tags. And back then it was the pixelated pint glass. I just took an image off of Google Images and I threw it through a filter in Photoshop and made it all blurry
0: and nice. stuck that on the, on the name
2: tags. I knew it was kind of turning into something special when Drew Foster came up with our logo and it's like, hey, I made this for you. He kind of did it as an appreciation of setting it up and it's been our logo ever since. It's an awesome logo. Yeah, yeah. He did a great job with it. And... Yeah it's served us well, right? Like, yeah, yeah you get you totally notice it anytime you, you see it, you know, exactly, you know, where you are. And mm-hmm. it changed a lot about like my life, the the public speaking and the, just the personal challenge of it. I was a nobody until that until then. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, I'm, you know, this guy that everybody knows. And it, it was weird. It, it was kind of like the frog in the pot kind of situation where I didn't really realize it until people would like yell my name, like when I'm walking down the street. And, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, Justin Bieber going for breakfast or anything, but i was like, ooh, that's kind of cool. You know, that's really neat. And yeah, and then that was it. It was just cruise control. We just kind of gradually built it up. It was 12 people a week, 13 people, 19, 21. And I realized I didn't like the bench tables when you're, you're sit down your butt is glued to that seat and it's really a crapshoot on whether or not you're sitting next to it, somebody who's gonna give you a good conversation because there was no right. mixing, right? Yeah. So that's when I moved to the Hop and Brew and I gradually began getting the hang of how to hold a room, basically. What makes a good conversation? And I got into edges. You need a lot of variety of seating areas and, and that kind of thing, standing and sitting, tables, tall tables. It was fun. I just got to basically have a party once a month. And I don't know what the stats are, but Mike is easily the one who's been to the most of them after me. I believe you've probably been to at least half of them, I bet.
1: Probably. Um, I I was looking it up and I think it's 45 of them that I've been to. Wow. Yeah,
2: that's about half. Well, I don't know. I don't even know how many we've done. I don't know. 13 times 12. Well, not 13 uh, because we haven't (laughs) done it for a while. Yeah. That's true.
0: That's true. We have. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. all been online since the yeah. pandemic broke out. Like, yeah. let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah, yeah. First of all, do you count, <laughs> do you count the virtual meetings? Because you don't, you, you've mentioned yourself, it, it's different. You don't have edges or seating plans when you go on an online Zoom call. It feels more formal. It's a different dynamic. So how do you find that transition so far, Tony, in terms of uh, the pandemic and Pixels and Pints and hosting events? Um, it's not the same, obviously.
2: And if you pay attention, I've never called any of the online events, pixels and pints. I've I've called it something mm -hmm. else. Yeah. So, you know, we've had the logo on Mm -hmm. there, but I'm very careful to not dilute that brand, the pixels and pint brand. So I usually call it pixels right now. It's Friday night pints. And before that, I would just have different names that weren't pixels and pints, even though it only matters to me. Nobody else would, would actually yeah, notice that. Right. When the lockdown first happened, I did one or two when we had the lockdown middle of March and we were on the third Thursday, perhaps, maybe the first Thursday. I can't remember. We took a bit of a break and I did tried an online event and it just didn't work that's when I did Discord. That's why we have all of the virtual tables as the voice channels in there. It really basically turned into everybody collected in one room. There was no mingling. There's no anything. It was just basically me on stage entertaining a group of people for a while. And it just wasn't there. And I didn't do any for probably almost a year after that. And I was fine with it. Because I'd been doing it for 12 years, 11 years at that point. We just had our 11th birthday, broke our records, and I realized, do you know what? If I'm ever going to take a hiatus off a Pixel, this is going to be it. So so I I didn't miss it. I didn't miss a whole heck of a lot, actually, during lockdown. I I quite enjoyed it. That's when I realized that, yes, I am a true introvert. I I (laughs) really enjoyed not needing to talk to people for a long time. And I do have to kind of come back from that. It's a little tough getting back into the stream of things. When we started doing the online events again, we've been doing them fairly regularly since the spring. And that's when I noticed that Zoom had upgraded their breakout rooms so that you could pick your room. People could pick rooms and switch rooms and like, okay, that seems about as close as we're going to get to that pixels feel and just started over the summer because I was so busy with work during the semesters. And right now I'm kind of like, yeah, I was planning on doing them all the way through the fall and everything, but they're now kind of feeling like the same all the time. Also, we are getting a lot of students too because now I'm teaching. So I have that other following now. So I have the the two lives. Whereas when we started, Pixels was kind of known as the big brains. The senior devs, people who really knew their stuff and really high-end conversation. And I think a big part of it was the call for talent too, that we had a good mix. We had a lot of juniors, a lot of intermediate, a lot of seniors. And when I began teaching after I shut down my agency, there definitely was a shift more towards the beginner side of things. And I'm fine with it, but I do like diversity of thought, having a good mix of people. So I have to be careful about that. So now we're doing the Pixie Pit. We're just leaning right into it because we're not going to have in-person for a while. If we do have one, it'll be late spring, summer, when we can do one outside. We can book a patio for Stampede or something like that. But I can't just not do events. I can't just let things dwindle at that point. I do have to stoke it a bit. So now I'm trying to figure out that this is kind of how this all shaped up. Stop talking to Mike. I need to like put the work into having a special guest and breaking the format and go facilitate a discussion around particular topics and everything and have a little bit more control a little bit more work in it and i'm still trying to get a handle on that i'm not the email kind of guy follow up on people you know hunt speakers down i know you guys are are kind of looking at that for bringing guests onto the show (laughs) maybe yeah yeah it's not intimidating, it's just one of those things you constantly have to think about, and if you don't have that built into your system, it's really hard to keep up with that.
1: I've been wondering for a while now if you recognize and realize the positive role that Pixels & Pints has had on so many developers for these last 13 years, not only in coming out for call for talent and getting jobs, of which I'm one successful candidate who got a job out of Pixels & Pints, um, but also clients, you know, I've gotten clients out of Pixels and Pints. Hey, I've also hired out of Pixels and Pints, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sean's yeah. right <laughs> up there laughing at me. He's <laughs> like,
0: you hi all oh, over here. Oh, yeah. I, I, I had this happen. I met a guy who, yeah. who uh, you know, I contracted out to him. It worked really <laughs> well.
1: And only thanks to Pixels, you know? Yeah. There's like so many connections and friendships that are really valuable to me. And I miss a lot of the people who would come out as regulars for Pixels & Pints and we would chat about sometimes just nothing, honestly. And then sometimes we would go really deep on some interesting technologies and I would get into some really good, downright challenge my thinking type conversations, please. And just so respectful in the way that you do not find online these days, I think. But because I think you're face to face, That respect is there in in ways that you don't see online. And that has really brought my career around. Let's see, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been at Pixels and Pints for 13 of that. I've changed my career track five times now because of things that I've learned from other members at Pixels and Pints on both sides of the equation. And I don't think that I'm the only one who feels that way. And I just wanted to take an opportunity publicly to say thank you, Tony, for doing Pixels and Pints. I think it's an amazing thing, and I want to know if you realize that, if you know how amazing this thing is.
2: I didn't. It took a while. You want to be the humble guy. And honestly, I take a lot of the credit from other people because at the end of the day, it is other people who are creating that community. Setting the stage, I do have that setting the mood of the room kind of thing. I was hoping, yeah, I think this is worth keeping going and everything. And I think what brought it home for me was when we had one of our birthdays and this couple came up and they were husband and wife and they actually met at a Pixels.
0: Oh, no
2: way. Wonderful. Yeah, they only went to one. They went to one. Wow. Uh, maybe two. And they had met there. They, yeah, eventually got married. <laughs> like... Awesome, that means I got your firstborn, right? (laughs) You know, like uh, what's uh, what are the rules on that? And but yeah, it has sunk in Mm -hmm. after a while, and I've reaped some of the rewards. You know, ironically, I didn't get a lot of projects out of this because you know it is a members only club, (laughs) so technically everybody there is my competition. At you know back Mm -hmm. then, but that's how I got my job at Sate through Dan, Dan the man. I met him through that for doing the February ones for his practicum students and trying to get people practicums. And that was probably one of the things that changed my life the most. That's when the networking side of it really turned everything into my favor because I was not a happy developer. Like I wasn't even a developer. Like I started developing when I first started my career, but when I gradually got the clients where I was doing it full time, I couldn't do it by myself, I had to hire people. I learned out of a book out of the php mm-hmm. cookbook yeah i was an amateur basically and my first hire was a computer engineer and i looked at his code and then i looked at my code and i was like well andrew you're coding from now on and i took a back seat and i became the business owner and i stopped coding and one thing led to another you're successful you have your highs and your lows your feast and your famine and after a while it just wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't my thing. And luckily, I met Dan at the right time. He was looking for an instructor for some of his students. And I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And I don't even know where I would be if I was still in that same position doing something I didn't want to do. And then we hit lockdown. I most definitely would have gone bankrupt. I'm one of the lucky ones. Teaching in the coding industry right now is like a big boon. And everyone's trying to jump into our industry. And I'm just lucky. I love the work, and I'm now back into coding. I'm actually a coder again. I was a PHP dev. They hired me to be PHP Laravel, and they switched the program a month later. <laughs> oh wow! And they asked me, "Can you teach Node?" And I'm like, <laughs> of course, yeah, I can. <laughs> I totally can teach <laughs> Node. Yeah, <laughs> I went directly to Udemy and and signed up for JavaScript the oh, weird yeah. parts, and uh, and then he also had a uh, a Node course and. and so Tony Alisea, totally that. <laughs> then I went in and began learning JavaScript to a level I never thought I'd know it. I'm still intermediate. I wouldn't ever consider myself senior.
0: But, you know, that all came from Pixels, right? You're humbling yourself, Tony. I've worked with you. We used to teach together. I don't know if Mike knows this. We used to work together at Lighthouse. At one point in time, we both would be TAs for Lighthouse. Well, I knew you were both with
1: Lighthouse, but I didn't know at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, we we had a was oh, really? Wow. the uh, Edison, right? Back w- when we had the Edison, and I remember didn't you do a lecture and then maybe I did a lecture too. I don't remember. I think I did a lecture and then you did a lecture. I no, I don't I don't know. I didn't do any lectures. I was only mentor at that point. Really? I,
2: believe. I wanted to do teaching and I was on they were trying to get me in there. Yeah, I remember that. But The main thing with those style of boot camps is CSS is kind of on the side, right? Definitely, yeah, and HTML. Yeah, if anything, they cover it for a week. And that's really my specialty is CSS. There isn't a lot of opportunity, let's put it that way, to teach the stuff that I want to teach. You know, like I do love the JavaScript, but oh my gosh, do I ever want to teach just CSS? If I could teach CSS
0: all day with a little bit of JavaScript to a little spice, I would be a happy camper. I feel like like we're like, like just vibing so well right now tony i feel the same way (laughs) that was that was me and i would help students do css and they would always come to me for the CSS. oh maybe you sometimes i don't know if you remember this oh yeah (laughs) those were the days like css teaching css is fun and then i know people don't like css at all there's people who would not want to spend an hour of their day on it at all let alone 15 minutes maybe we're different we're outliers maybe we just love front end i don't know But I remember that, yeah, like CSS was kind of on the back burner for that curriculum and still is now. I think every bootcamp that I go to, there's not a lot of it. Yeah.
2: I'm lucky because I'm the, I run my program. I do 10 days of HTML CSS.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
2: Yeah. I love it. I love doing that. We have to not teach react and and all that stuff. I like doing it that way. I don't really agree with the tendency of a bootcamp to jump right into react. Oh, it's
0: it's just, and that's, that's a real problem. Yeah. Tell our listeners, because I'm sure our listeners are really curious. How do you introduce somebody who has very little experience or little to no experience writing websites? What's the starting point? Do you just say, oh, this is the HTML element, this is the body, and then you work your way down or what's the approach for that?
2: Um, I don't even do like the way that I look at it is everything has to be visual. That's why I think why I like the CSS side of things. Right. The problem with a lot of this stuff is that with the browser, because of the way you know, the standards are set up, everything is backwards compatible. Anything right. that goes into a browser, browser is always going to be in a browser. So it is such a messy environment and there's a thousand ways to do one thing. And the one thing I learned about learners is that beginners, you can't give them options. You have to give them one way of doing things because there's convergent learning and divergent learning. Convergent is like what we think of as school. There's one answer to a question. Mm -hmm. And then there's divergent learning, where if you had a divergent test question, it would be, well, the Malcolm Gladwell example from one of his books is, uh, name all the things you can do with a brick in one minute. How many uses for a brick (laughs) can you come up with? And that's a divergent question. So it's a creativity question. And as an expert, as somebody who knows a particular domain, there's a tendency to want to teach everything you're so excited you're you know they're gonna be amazed by all this stuff but we forget it's been a while since we've had to learn code and learners can only learn one thing at a time so when this is what i love about teaching is the challenge of understanding what state a mind is in when they're learning when do they get to the divergent side of it so you have to give them one way of doing things so one of the examples would be horizontal nav just give them Flexbox. And there's a tendency to teach them the old way. This is how you used to do it. Inline block. With floats. Or floats. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, floats and inline block. And they say, just in case you see it in industry. And like, no, you don't do that. You teach them one way, only teach them that one way. And then you teach them something else one way. And you chain them. So the way that I would do somebody who's a complete beginner is I would teach them visual hierarchy in Google Docs and I'd have them break apart a paragraph into bullet points and then take those bullet points and teach them lists. And that idea of a list will basically be the core of a, an entire set of modules throughout the year where you're doing bulleted lists or actually we would do Google Docs. And what we're doing this year is we're doing Google Docs. Then we're jumping to Markdown. So that's where we're introducing them to code. They don't know they're coding. They're declaratively coding but it's just a dash. It's the same thing, and then you compile it into HTML, and now they see the HTML and then we teach them the HTML. So you see it first, you read it first, then you write it second. So this is like Bloom's hierarchy of learning basically. Really? You need to walk before you can run. So you see it, you recognize it, that's like step one, understanding it, and then you apply it and that's when you begin writing it. So they will be writing an ordered list, but only after they realize, oh, this is really just a list in Google Docs. It's just that button, I'm just doing it manually. Right. And the next level of that, you wrap it in a nav. And then the next level after that, you wrap that in a header with a logo and you nest your Flexbox. And after that, you can do a number of things, that's where it diverges. So once somebody has gotten to that point, you're done giving them the one way because they'll understand the underlying concept of structure, taxonomy of html css is really all about selectors but it's still declarative you learn the cascade that kind of stuff and once they kind of have their feet grounded then you begin giving them the divergent ideas of like okay now that you have this list now what else can you do with it and you go back you go back to the bulleted list and you have them replace the bullets with an image you teach them pseudo elements or actually the way we're doing is we don't have time to teach that in the morning they have point A. At the end of the morning, they have point B. They have lunch, and they have three options, C, D, or E. Which one are you going to pick? And they will be different enough, but they'll still be related to the morning's lecture. So it could be pseudo-elements if we were talking block quotes or something like that. And okay, let's do all block quotes with a pseudo-element is basically an opening quote really big off to the left, absolutely positioned. And you do that only after you've done very linear, step-by-step, one way to do things, and then you open up options to them. At least that's the theory right now. I don't know. We're, that's what Ash and I are working on for this semester.
1: So if there's somebody out there and they're considering getting into a program like the one that you teach, what would you ask them to consider? What should they be thinking about in terms of should they or shouldn't they get into programming and taking a course like yours?
2: I would say just give it a shot. We just had our orientation yesterday, so we just started day one of official teaching. And I I told them that a lot of you guys, you're going to realize quickly that you're not in it for coding. You're not a coder. And I tell them that's just imposter syndrome. That's the first thing that we learn as an instructor, how to (laughs) stop that. I tell them, like, stick with it. This is three and a half months of your life. It's a drop in the bucket of where you're at. Just stick with it. Like, it's a certificate course. You've paid to be here spend the time because you've already spent the money and worst case scenario, you come out of this knowing Git and that will make 99% of the people that you know, just be amazed (laughs) by what you've learned, right? Like you can go into this program and you feel like a piece of shit the entire time. Like I'm not learning anything. What I would love to do is have two concurrent cohorts that are staggered so that the next cohort starts halfway through the cohort that came before it and then we get that first cohort to mentor and maybe even teach some of the second cohort and they'll see right away how much they've
0: learned didn't we have that at one point at lighthouse i think we did end up doing that later on towards the end of my tenure uh, as a ta there Remember, we had two cohorts at one point in the co-working space, and one of them was like two months ahead of the starting one. So sometimes the students would co-mingle and they would share learnings about the exercises and and so on and so forth. And we found that pretty helpful because it, there's nothing like learning from the future you two months later, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I really like that because it teaches the people who started first, like, oh, yeah, I used to be like that. Wow. I actually have learned. A lot of stuff and i really love that idea of mixing mingling yeah that's just one of those things about those boot camps is that it's so short there's not many other good uses of your time even if you're not going to work the ladder become a junior intermediate senior you can go into that program come out of it go back to your old industry and what we do is very horizontal it applies to almost every other walk of life every job every career that you could ever be in and just the fact that you know command line you know git you understand the phone that you're looking at for like six hours a day right
0: that's kind of what brings it home to me i know you came from a non-technical background and that has always impressed me tony because i remember when well even when i first came to pixels you presented yourself as i'm not I'm not a technical guy i don't know how to code and that was six seven years ago maybe maybe more i've known you for a while but now you've sort of transitioned to more of an instructor, more educator, and you said you get your hands dirty. So what would you say the main difference is between the you seven years ago and the you now? Because we talked about, you know, if you had to teach yourself something <laughs> three months later, what would you say to yourself now that you've overcome that so-called imposter syndrome? <sighs> well, what I would tell myself,
2: number one, because I was a coder. Like the reason why I didn't come from a technical background, was because I started so early, right? Like it was late 90s, early, like 2001. Our industry, what didn't exist yet, I didn't come from computer science. I was going to go into med school. So when I learned web development at the gauntlet at the U of C, I fell in love with it. And that's why I went into environmental biology. I wanted the quickest way out because I knew I was going to start my own gig. And that's what I did. If I could go back and tell myself some advice, I would say, "Don't go into WordPress."
0: <laughs> Let's talk about WordPress. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like, sorry about it was, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it was the worst career decision uh, I ever made. Because we we had a good thing going where I was a PHP dev, and I hired Andrew, and he introduced me to the idea of a framework. What, what what's a framework? I'm like, oh, this is Symfony. This is Zend. Oh, Zend. I remember Zend. Oh, yeah. Back in the behemoth framework days, right? Like... Cake PHP or yeah. something as well. A whole bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. Cake was like the, the, the step when it became more lean. Like yeah. it wasn't like a monolith yeah. like, uh, like Zend and Symphony.
0: Doesn't Laravel use Symphonies? Or am I wrong about that? It can, yeah. It, it does it? or Okay.
1: It can. It's, it's, I think it's an optional... Mm. It it started out using Symfony by default, but I think it's no longer the default option anymore.
0: Oh, okay. Anyway, side note there. (laughs) So what were you saying? Sorry, Tony. (laughs) Well,
2: basically I was doing that. Once we moved over to frameworks, that's when Andrew took over because I wasn't really at that level of understanding even what a framework was. I didn't know what build tools were. All of my stuff is very, very simple stuff. And when you get into the frameworks, sure, you get into patterns. And I didn't understand those patterns. And Andrew did. So for the good of the company, I took a step back and I kept on doing what we were doing, which was fine. It was, it was great. I enjoyed working with the client and Andrew hated working with clients. So I did all the scoping. I managed the projects. And my first client was PPDM, Public Petroleum Data Model Association. And because of petroleum, not-for-profits, everybody on boards kind of hangs out together. So I landed another client, Kapla and then Kappel, then IRWA, then Pods. And my company became known as the membership company where membership renewals, event registrations, that kind of stuff. We did quite well. And then I got blindsided because I lost one of my major clients to IRM, which is a membership services kind of company based in Calgary. And i didn't even know these guys existed and this was a SaaS, basically software as a service and Mm. i got scared i'm like oh my gosh i thought i was gonna have like an eighty thousand dollar contract and no apparently petroleum not-for-profits in the oil and gas industry that's fine when it's ninety dollars a barrel but you know now they've decided to spend five thousand dollars a month on somebody else's system and to me the writing was on the wall and I thought, oh man, I gotta pivot. And I went the wrong way, I went I went to WordPress. And yeah, if I could go back in time, I would stop doing that. And I wasn't even a dev back then, even then. It was in very slow decline as my soul just kind of ground to a nub a little bit. And yeah, I just kind of let my company die. And luckily I got into the teaching. I would, probably would should have gone into teaching a lot sooner. Like it was already there, like I was doing the Pixel Academy. I was already going in that direction, but I should have gone into it sooner. Now I'm coding. My love of code has nothing to do with a job. My love of code is self-expression, creating something that I think is beautiful. You know, that's why I love the CSS side of things. And when I have the time, I need to upgrade my skills and I want to upgrade my JavaScript skills. Like I got the higher order functions and all of that. But now I need some higher architecture type stuff. So I want to get into finite state machines. Because I want to build board games because I, I miss all my friends. <laughs> I'm still kind of distancing. So I figured, hey, do you know what? That's going to be my next project. I'm going to build a, a game. Shane, my, uh, my roommate of like 11 years, not anymore, but he lived with me for 11 years. And he went down that road. He actually, his portfolio project was Crib. And so he built a game. So I asked him, like, okay, I want to build an online version of King of New York rolling dice, shuffling decks, you know, all of those nice patterns that I don't have, but I don't know where to start. And then you said, finite state machines, man. That's how you manage your turn order. It's how g- all games are built nowadays. So do that. And I was looking it up. I loved it. And then school started. <laughs> and then <laughs> I had to put it on the back burner. Okay. And that, that's where like my current frustration is. Teaching beginners means that I'm only living in the beginner world, which I love. It's still fulfilling. But sooner or later, I need to break out of this and I need to really follow my passion or start a school that teaches intermediate programming, which I don't even know if that's needed, if there's even a need for that. When you get to a certain level, you can just learn on your own, do the Udemy thing, study on uh, at your own pace kind of stuff. I don't know if
0: there's really uh, something there. I don't know. Who knows? I think Chris Coyer does, uh, does a series like that called Front End Masters. Have you heard about that, Tony? Um, I've heard of it. I'm not quite familiar with it, though. They had some really good talks, like Sarah Sudane and uh, Una Kravitz. There's some pretty big mm. CSS names out there, if you've heard about them. So they've they've done some presentations. There was a whole long course about Gatsby. And then there's Level Up Tuts. There's a bunch of these intermediate courses, and they're really interesting. I've had the chance of taking some of these courses And boy, do you learn so much. It's a huge journey and you can learn a lot. It's the same value, I would say, of getting a contractor to come into your workplace and give you a lowdown on some new technology, whether it's some kind of a view library that you don't use or some kind of CSS stuff that maybe you didn't know about before. Maybe you're not using CSS Grid and then everybody wants to kind of learn that. And what better way than to have a course that the whole company does. And then everybody has to do this course. And we, we have that sometimes at my company, we have to do certain courses. We had to do one on SQL. We'll have to do another one on security. So these things happen. And then they have contractors that come in and do those courses. Have you thought about maybe going into that as in doing those sorts of corporate level instruction I could do that,
2: but what I don't like about that model is I have to deal with clients. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I really have learned to appreciate the position I'm in where my client is my students, and I'm still building software for a client, but they don't know what they need. They just will consume whatever I build them, and they will pay me for it. And (laughs) it's amazing because I have... 25, 26 clients at a time. And sure, I have this gigantic broker called Sate who's taking like, you know, <laughs> yeah. 80% off the top. But you know what? My position right now in that program is I can teach whatever I want. And we're now redoing the outlines and everything like that. So I have a lot of power with what I'm teaching and what I think my students should be learning. And I'm taking it from the standpoint of let's not teach React in four months. Let's think about it eight months. Yeah. So I, I look at my program as a beginner step. If they left, they could maybe not go to a boot camp, but they could learn React like that, right? One of my students learned React over the course of, he was one of my top students, of course. Mm-hmm. He was learning React while he was taking our program, got a practicum. With a company that had a React app that was embedded in an Excel spreadsheet, which is crazy. Yeah. As a plugin, I had no idea that could even be done.
0: You can do that? (laughs) Yeah.
2: But he didn't have a mentor because this company only hires students because they like the rate, which is they don't have to pay them. And he didn't have a mentor. So I matched him up with Justine. Oh, Justine. Love Justine. Yeah. Yeah. So Justine's- Justine's awesome. Yes. We'll have to have her
0: on sometime. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh my gosh, that would be such an awesome episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's make that happen.
0: Yeah, well, she even volunteered, so I'm having to coordinate that one. Yeah, oh my gosh. She, you know, preaching in the choir, she's amazing.
2: Probably the most senior <laughs> dev that I know, I think, when it comes to React. Oh yeah. And so I matched her up with my student and... Now, like after, so he graduated in December, got the practicum in January, Mm -hmm. and by April, he's now a junior dev at Helsing. Right on. So he kind of proves the model if you're talking about top students. He definitely knows how to learn. He's not afraid of problems. So that's another side of it. If you're not quite there, if you don't think you can do it, if you're running away from problem solving, it's going to take longer. But I think from where he started... And from where he ended up, it was about eight months. And I think that's like a healthy model. But who has $25,000 to do that, right? Like a, like a boot camp already mm. is like 11K, 9 to 12K, something like that. So whatever model I eventually go with, right now, I'm looking at starting a, my school at next summer, and it'll be Patreon. And I'm just going to oh, take whatever great. people give me. And basically take it from the standpoint of my dad. My dad was a birthday clown. And there's almost kind of like a cartel of clowns in, in the city where... <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. He made a lot of enemies <laughs> because he was a $95 an hour clown. Really? And that seems like a lot of money, but most clowns are like mid two, three, four, five hundred $500 an hour. And they hated him because he was undercutting, right? And I, I like that. Like my dad's basic philosophy was that you shouldn't have to be rich to have a clown for your child's birthday. So he had a lot of mm-hmm. parties in the Northeast. When he was a Santa Claus, he would do half an hour for 50 bucks. You, you can't find that anywhere, right? And that's kind of how I'd look at the school side of things, of boot camps, in that like Evolve You, they treat their teachers very well. I, I was very happy with my compensation there. And they do have a government contract and everything, but man, I feel bad to be in a system where somebody has to pay, you know, 10K for four months of work. I think education should be free. Of course, you know, we're you know 30 years away from that now, 40 years away from that. But I think there's a happy medium. Like if you could somehow cut that price in half, make it 5K. And it still should be cheaper than that, 5K for four months. And if you structure your system well enough, you won't go broke doing it with like a certain number of students. And now they have the space in the wallet to do another boot camp after that. I would love to see it so that they can hop to other schools because I always run into like right now, we just started a cohort and you're going to have that spectrum. You're going to have the ones in the middle, the ones who are leading and the ones who are falling behind. And the ones who are leading, I know they're going to be bored. And I, I just, you know, like, just go to Lighthouse. Lighthouse is probably going to be your pace. You're going to get out of the gate way quicker. And you have the mindset that you can succeed in Lighthouse. And then on the other side, we have the people who they don't like typing. They don't like sitting at a desk. You know, well, that, that, that's code. We're fancy typers. That's That's what we do. So I would suggest them. Like I'm working on a program with the other state school, Sad Tech. I call it Sad State. Daddy Warbucks dropped 15 mil or something like that on their desk, and they start up a school. So they're working right. on a UX/UI boot camp. And for the students that don't think that they're cut for coding, I would love to have some kind of system where they can be basically traded. We'd have a trade deadline every semester, and all <laughs> the schools in the in the city would kind of coordinate their dates and stuff so that we would be able to like swap students. And I think if we did something like that where I'd have my program that was kind of like a beginner program for that could be fed into all these other ones, then I think that would be kind of a nice place to be. Whether or not we would ever get there, I don't know. That's the unicorn idea. And I don't mind having unicorn ideas, high ideas, so to speak.
1: Well, I want to bring it back a little bit to something you said earlier and ask both of you a question. Tony, you're a special guest, so I'll ask you first. What, to you, is the difference between junior, intermediate, and senior developer?
2: Um, Attitude, to me. Well, (laughs) I would say between junior, intermediate, for me, I think a junior is somebody who is now thinking about jumping to another stack. Trying something else. Someone who dabbles in more than one framework. So, junior devs got the first one down. They've got some understanding on that first one, and now they're considering. They're looking around at other options. Yeah, like a junior dev will be. That's a long journey, right? Like that's that's going to be a while. And mm-hmm. uh, I think a junior dev will will stay within their wheelhouse for for a while. Yeah, that's a that's a great point right there. Yeah, and then they'll they'll begin jumping. And, and as soon as you you see somebody who is getting bored with their current stack mm-hmm. and they want to try something else, you know, they want that challenge. Bam, attitude, like that's intermediate
0: right there. Senior, I don't know. I've never been a senior, so who knows. <laughs> All right. Sean? I I think I think it it does come down to attitude at some point, but I don't know that I agree with the idea of adopting new technologies as an intermediate. I think that's a part of it. I think taking risks is important, but understanding the strengths and the weaknesses of all the different technologies. If you've been there and you know what each tool does and how it works with other technologies, then that might set you apart. But beyond that, I think beyond the tools and the stack part, I think it does come down to attitude. It comes down to how you present the problem and how you solve it. And this is just generic to any business, right? If you can summarize a problem in a meeting and really get down to that problem and come up with different solutions to solve that problem, whether it involves using different view libraries or coming up with different approaches to working with the customer. Those are things that I think a lot of developers don't have. They oftentimes don't spend much time interacting with the customer. But beyond all of that, it's can you see the code? Can you make good judgments in terms of what makes sense at this point? And bottom line, I think it's scope creep. So can you keep your scope to a minimum and reduce the amount of things that you promise and over deliver as opposed to under delivering that in itself? If you can just maintain the scope, then that's more senior level because that's what senior developers do. They'll keep the scope to a minimum and make sure that every other developer feels comfortable and that they understand the scope of their project.
2: Yeah, I like the pattern of algorithms, like building an algorithm where you plan it out, brute force it, then you do a walkthrough or test and then you optimize. And at a certain point, seniors just jump straight to optimization. Mm-mm. They've just been doing it for so long, right, that they just know it's going to work. And you know, like at my peak, probably where I was maybe the closest to being a senior, still like no frameworks or anything like that. I coded for 2 or 3 hours straight and then I ran it, no errors. And I'm like, "Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it did exactly what it was supposed to do." And that's when I was just like it was three o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, yeah. And the high that you got, I felt like Hugh Jackman in Swordfish. Yeah. When he was uh, putting those cubes into the digital thing. I don't know. If you, do you guys remember Swordfish? I'm working on it. I need four more monitors. <laughs> <laughs> like if I could go, like we need to do like a, a gallery of, uh, of mm-hmm. movie coding or something like that. There's thousands of videos online that probably do it. But th- that was the Hugh Jackman when mm-hmm. he, he put his ninth... Thing and it's just the montage and he's just like yeah and he's doing the thing and he's like you know he's in the groove and that's what I felt like that yeah. one day and it never happened again
0: but uh, you know whatever I think there's a lot to say about that like the quick wins as you work more towards your goal as like say senior or intermediate level I think a lot of us developers deny ourselves the opportunity to feel proud of ourselves, to feel that sense of accomplishment when we do something effectively. When we write our tests, we go from red to green. We have our integration tests and we have our acceptance tests and we we do those things. And we know that we have quality assurance in our software, in our code, that we oftentimes just skip to the next thing and we don't give ourselves that pat on the back and tell ourselves that we've actually done something really cool. I think that's why maybe I've gravitated more towards front-end work. Because it's very visual. And once you get something to work, when you get that checkbox hack to work, when you get that invisible nav item to to work with screen readers, maybe, or you do something and you're like, well, that's really cool. I did something really cool. But I think a lot of us skip ahead and we don't give ourselves enough opportunity to really celebrate what we've done. And I think that's kind of what what you're getting at, Tony, is like, that feels great to get to that point where maybe you're writing that state machine and you're optimizing, but you did this. You made this happen. And we, we oftentimes don't feel as good about it. We just skip to the next thing and think that we're maybe not there. We, we're not giving ourselves enough credit. I think you're
2: mentioning of tests. That's a symptom of a high-level dev. No, maybe. Um, probably the symptom of the fact that they got hired by a big company. I've never done unit tests. And that's one of the things that I see as a, like a key skill that so many people that I run into would love to learn, like if they're when they're intermediate, is they would love the opportunity to get into unit tests. But you need the budget, you need the environment. The startup world is probably very test oriented. But if you go to Evans Hunt, you know, any of the agencies, there you know, anyone with a client who isn't like a dev centric client, they're not gonna spend the money on unit tests. So you're kind of stuck in that area. And to me, that's the next echelon is when you get into unit test. And I still don't understand them. Like I you know assert. I that was the first time I ever saw I was an assert. Was that Lighthouse? Yeah, I remember like, we taught that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was mentoring and one of the students came up and said like, how do you do this? i like, I don't fucking know what that even is. <laughs> and like what what did you write this assert function? Yeah. Like I had no idea. And I was—I just felt so dumb. But that's when I realized, like, oh, you know what? My job isn't to know the answer. My job is to teach them how to search the Internet and how to, like, look for errors and stuff. But that went through me for a loop. And i was just like, wow, Lighthouses is on uh, a certain level. You know, like, Evolve U is starting to do it now, too. But I would never even, like, touch that. I would do it behind the scenes. That's the dream is to have them hand in assignments and I just, you know, I have a computer that tells them how much it is <laughs> or how what their mark is just based on the test. Like testing functions, that would be a fun one because functions are so key that if you could uh, streamline the, the process, it would be like doing unit tests for whether or not somebody wrote a correct function. But yeah, I don't know, it's an interesting idea, like what is the delineation from there? At the end of the day, it's bullshit. You know, just our tendency to put nominal categories on things. For me, like one of my goals, if I ever leave teaching, I have two options. I go back into the industry, but as an employee, you know, I would just take uh, like an intermediate position, maybe even a junior position because I'd be doing the easy stuff for so long. But uh, just to grind the clock, work the ladder and do what you guys do. I don't know if I could do it. It would have to be a good startup. Definitely wouldn't be like an agency. I don't think I can handle clients again. But if I had the right startup, I could maybe get back into that if if I had good mentorship. And my sales pitch would be that I know how to teach, so I know how to learn. Your mentorship will be way faster paced. I would pick it up pretty quickly. Or I would go into UX and I would completely take a beeline and go into stickies and dots and facilitation. And I wouldn't do the code, but I'm not even there yet. I wouldn't do it until I get some kind of passive income going with courses. So that's, that's my end game is the teaching thing, get that on autopilot and maybe keep doing it with intermediates. I don't know. Who knows? I want to create a course that teaches games. Okay. Not to get a job, but just to become a, you know, just have fun. Just love code. I've got an
1: interesting derailment here. I know that Sean has been writing code. Evenings and weekends on top of his day job.
0: You got me, Mike. You got me.
1: (laughs) I write code evenings and weekends on top of my day job. Yeah. Tony, I know you write code a little bit evenings and weekends on top of your day job. Do you think that is a requirement to be in this industry? Or do you just think that it's a best practice to be in this industry? Or are the three of us just crazy? And I uh, have no concept of work-life balance whatsoever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, one thing I think we're lucky, and no, I don't think you have to do that. There are a lot of people who think like farmers. They just do the job. They come in, they leave, and then they have their family and they do their thing and they come in, they code. They don't have a love for it, but they don't hate it. You know, it's just another job. And that is completely valid, right? Right. And then there's, yeah, like I I did notice that too when we were talking about demos and Sean demoed his uh, story building app, knowing Mm. that he's already got like a job. I'm like, (laughs) man, I I don't know if, like I do that, but it's still all job. Like the only difference is that when I'm teaching at SAIT, it's 12 hours a day, just working the job. I don't have time to work on my King of New York app. And if I did have only like a seven or eight hour day, I don't know if I would go and do my own app. I don't like sitting at a computer that much. I do have variations. You know, I have like a good bed setup where I have my cushions and I have my feet raised (laughs) and I'm just like, you know, sitting with a bunch of pillows behind me and I'll code for like hours like that. In your bed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done that too.
0: Uh, It's great. I did it yeah. in Australia. I made my invoicing app like that. It was so hot outside, and I just didn't want to go anywhere. <laughs> in some <laughs> Airbnb, just yeah, my little laptop, right? The what is it, the 14-inch one, and you just kind of, and your your hands get so like cramped. I don't know if you had that. Your back gets sore. <laughs> um, nah, I've got no core strength, so my back doesn't even notice anything. You don't notice it because you're you're busy coding and you're in. <laughs> It doesn't know what correct posture is. (laughs) I thought I was the only one doing that, but uh, proved me wrong, Tony. (laughs) Yeah, it works for me. I do
2: like dual display. Dual display is when I come back up here, when I do have like, okay, this is a big job. A lot of my stuff is just writing, writing tiny bits of code, writing my lesson plans and and stuff like that. So my little 11 inch air is fine for that. And you know, when I get tired, I just close it up, go to sleep, get back up and code again and then when I have to do the big deal stuff where I need to actually look like at a lot of code then yeah then I'll come back out here but yeah and come to think of it yeah I don't know if I could do a senior job I don't know if I could just sit
0: in a spot (laughs) for that long I need to walk around I think it's different for everybody like senior level is different for every company. It means something different. And Mike and I have talked about this on the podcast before. Even Mm -hmm. if you have a senior level position, the responsibilities can really widely vary, depending on the skill sets of the existing staff, and especially depending on the size of the company. So I think you might not be giving yourself enough credit saying that you can't do a senior level or that you can or can't. It just takes some time to really figure out what you can offer and your special skill set and where your specialization can fit into an organization I think would would you agree with that, Mike, because I think we've kind of talked about this before, right? We've talked about it before,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, it really is situational and dependent,
0: yeah, we haven't talked about
1: lead developers yet, and oh yeah. And their requirement to task switch constantly throughout the day from writing code and focused on the line of code to constantly being interrupted with serious questions from the new developer who doesn't know how to connect to the database because you haven't helped them set up their mm-hmm. .env file and their whole day is now blocked if you don't drop what you're doing and go and help
0: them exactly. actually set up their environment. Let's take a little bit of a detour. And what was it, Mike? Talk about side hustling.
1: Side hustles, yes. I think a lot of people get into software development because they think they'll learn how to write code so they can build their own app, not have to pay a developer, and then do the whole business side as well as that. Do you see that in your program, Tony? Do you see people who are getting into this because that's their ultimate goal as opposed to getting a full-time day job and getting into development and doing that? Do you meet those? type
2: of students there were a couple like literally a girlfriend boyfriend husband and wife team that were both enrolled and they had this store idea this online drop shipping kind of company Hmm. that's one of the reasons why they wanted to learn code like you know that was one of their side side things they actually did want to find jobs and transition into the industry okay and it wasn't until that I just showed them Shopify. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this already exists. They realized, you know, they, they didn't need to do any of this stuff. Oh, you want to do drop? And like, here, here's the drop shipping that you can just hook all this up. You're, you're done. Yeah. Oh, well man, um, if
1: anybody would like to hear us interview somebody from Shopify, uh,
2: leave a comment down below and I can make that happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not that I, I don't know much about Shopify itself, but I do love Liquid. I like the language. I'm a big eleventy nerd right now. I just oh, love it. Oh that's yeah, eleventy. that's
0: getting huge right now.
2: Yeah, it's really nice. It's what I built our program website on and Oh yeah. We have a, a course that does content management. It's been WordPress, like a throwback from when it was PHP. Mm-hmm. And I kept it in there because that's where most of the jobs for the practicums are. And I brought in a instructor for that and then she left. And I was like, well, fuck it. We're gonna remove WordPress and we're gonna get into 11T. But getting back to your question, Mike, I haven't seen a lot of it. Now, my guess for that is most boot camps, you're gonna have mature students. So they're gonna be 30, 40, even 50. They're gonna have kids, they're gonna have obligations and all that. And what's something I've found, I don't know if it's the way they market or it's their position in the ecosystem my program has a lot of 19 year olds right out of high school hmm. and i don't see as much of the mature learners in my program but we do get that a bit more in evolve U. evolve you they've got the deal where you know you can still keep your ei and then go to school and all of that stuff and i don't know what it is about uh, entrepreneurs but the ones who want to start a startup are generally on ei so you know, I think it's more conducive <laughs> to them. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh. So I, I think it, like, I don't see it a lot, but my program's a special case. Like, I, I think we're more traditional mm. in that way. We attract the traditional kind of folks. And somebody who is thinking startup, they, they don't usually take the default options, I find so they're probably taking other avenues. Probably I would guess, you know, like a learn at your own pace type of Udemy type thing. Right. Yeah. And then they'll probably do an evolve you as a last resort. But you'd have to ask Margot. She would have all the demos of their students.
1: Controversial question. Would you recommend it? Would you recommend that somebody who wants to start their own startup go and learn how to code?
2: Yes, I think everybody should learn how to code. Why is that? Um, it's a sign of literacy. You know, this is modern literacy, I think. We're teaching in grade six. They're doing it in elementary school. So uh, when I was doing some sessions with the library, I would travel to some of the satellite libraries, and we did fun with code. It's great. Like, all I had to do was get people interested in code. And a lot of mature learners, a lot of moms, wanted to hang out with their kids a little bit more, and they wanted to learn a bit of code. And it was very basic, HTML, CSS. We didn't even get into the JavaScript. And then it was uh, the summer, and they asked me if I could teach the teen program on that teen floor up on the third floor. it's like, yeah, love it. And went in and I brought my regular suitcase of activities and, and lectures and everything. And I got about half an hour in and there was this timid 12-year-old girl in the corner who just kind of like raises her hand. And and I said, like, yes, yes, what uh, what is it? And she said, um, can we skip the HTML CSS? I learned this in grade six. Oh. And, <laughs> and I thought... Yes, we definitely can. It's like, who, who wants to learn JavaScript? Everyone rose their hands. Oh, right there. wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And that convinced me that everyone needs to learn a bit of code, you know, like just a little bit. And if you're an entrepreneur and you've got your own ideas and a lot of your ideas center around software, you don't have to code your own project, but at a certain point, you're going to need to know how to communicate with developers. And the best way to do that yes. is to is to feel that grind and be staring at that fucking error for 3 hours. Yes. And you finally solve it and you get the next error, but it's still awesome, you know, yeah. and yeah. even yeah. as a like if you're not going to end up coding your app and you feel you know, okay, this is a steep hill. That's the whole point is that you've realized how deep that industry is and just as a business owner you're going to respect your employees a little bit more. Like, I couldn't do it, so I'm going to hire somebody who can. Kind of like accounting and lawyers and that kind of stuff. Just having that that client that doesn't do backseat design, backseat programming, that won't happen. Well, I mean, it might happen if somebody actually tried programming, but they'll have a certain respect for the trade, right? Yeah. And I think everyone should do it. Everyone should take a boot camp and do that four months. And if you never come back to it again, great. Like, totally fine. But you do have that exposure to that side of the world. So when the AIs come and take
0: us over, you know who to blame. (laughs) (laughs) It, It almost sounds like cars. I never really knew much about cars until I got the toolkit from my dad. And then I could start to take things apart. And then only then did I start to appreciate just how complex certain things can become. Like even putting together a door or like anything like Doing drywall, I had to do some of that growing up and I learned as I went that these things involve more than just labor. There's some thought that goes into these things like putting on the epoxy glue first or understanding how to change a spare tire on your car. These things will help you in the end and if you don't do them and you don't expose yourself to the inner workings, then you'll never appreciate all the effort that goes into them, whether that's maintaining a car or maintaining a computer or in some cases, hopefully, maintaining a website. I remember when I was into poker
2: and whenever I get into a passion, I build something. Like I make something that revolves around that. And so for poker, I made a poker table. And oh my gosh, it was... Man, so did I. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my, in my life. Yes. A few years later, I teamed up with my buddy Evan to build another poker table that we each have one. Mm -hmm. And it was a four by eight sheet because I made one of those big long bench ones and I wanted a gaming table just for like board games and stuff. So we did a hexagon. Mm -hmm. I figure, okay, one big four by eight sheet, we can cut it in half and we each get a table. We'll just, you know, we'll team up and we'll work on this project together. And Mm -hmm. I remember when it was a bad day, you know, nothing worked right. And I was getting frustrated and Evan noticed that. And he said, Tony, don't worry about it. That's making the physical world doesn't give a shit about your goals it's, yep. it's going to throw mm-hmm. things into the, you're going to get hung up on, you measured this wrong, you ran out of screws, you can't find the hammer. All of these things, it's nothing personal. It's just the universe. That's just entropy. And that is what making is, is removing that entropy from the world and adding a bit of order. And that order could be a poker table, it could be something else. And I had been a maker before that. Like I defined myself as a maker, I was into lasers, I love working with wood and all that stuff. But I really didn't get the philosophy of it, the understanding of what a maker was until he told me that. And I think that there's an analogy for that for programming, when you get to that point, and you're grinding out some code, and you finally get that second error, that's not the same error. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yes, and you're so happy for that error. Because it's a syntax error. And you know exactly what's wrong, because it's a that's a syntax error. <laughs> you know, then that's the greatest <laughs> error ever. Like, oh, okay, semicolon, done. <laughs> but now it's just like, why is this always undefined? JavaScript is broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's a yeah. bug in JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> Who do I tell? Let's, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna email the V8 guys. <laughs> for sure. Well, there's an
1: interesting topic to go down. How do you ask for help in software? I think there's some rules. I think there are some best practices. If you're going to go to GitHub and ask for help, if you're gonna go to Stack Overflow, for example, and ask for help, is it- If you go to a
0: colleague and ask for help. Go to a colleague and ask for help. How do you do it interpersonally? How do you do it over a Zoom Mm -hmm. call? Do you send them an Mm -hmm. email? Do you send them a Slack message? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: how, how do you do that? I think one of the skills that you learn real fast as a junior developer is how to ask for help and when. When do you ask for help? One of the problems with junior developers in any organization is if they look with their mouth before they look with their eyes. And that gets real chatty and real annoying, real fast for your lead developer if you're constantly going, hey, I have a problem with this, well, th- did you open your dev tools and look at the error code and stack trace down to the actual line in your code that you just changed where the problem exists? Yeah. If you have to teach them that, then it gets real annoying real fast. But even then, you know I've always had a long-held belief, and I think this comes from the longstanding work with open source, is every time I ask a question, I will answer three questions. And junior devs will often say, I don't know how to answer three questions. And I will tell them, what do you know a lot about that's not necessarily software development? Because you can go and help people online right now today who don't know how to make a cup of coffee in a coffee maker that you own, that you make coffee with every morning. I bet you you can find somebody who has a question about that and you can help them. And I think if you're going to be a junior dev and if you're going to be looking for help, I think there should be some parameters around that. And I'm wondering, in your experience, what kind of things have you seen that are really great and what kinds of things have you seen that you really want to avoid?
2: Um. Well, it just so happens we had our orientation yesterday, and I have this in the house rules for the program. And so I tell them that employers look for the following skills when they hire juniors. Independent learning, how to ask for help, and knowing when to ask for help. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, The debugging thing, it's fairly based on that poster from the Lighthouse classroom from the Edison.
0: The 20-minute rule or
2: the uh, rubber duck programming one? Um, Well, here's what I've got. Step one, troubleshoot. This is how you learn to code through your fingers. (laughs) Are there syntax errors? Did you validate your code? Can you reproduce the error reliably? Are there any theories? Step two, using the proper terminology, so domain-specific terminology, search for solutions online, and learn to recognize the quality of a search result. Step three, more troubleshooting. And then it kind of repeats. And then step four, talk to the rubber duck. What? (laughs) Right. And that's where I link to the rubber duck. And then step five, if you're stuck, ask for help, uh, but be respectful of somebody's time. So in that case, I have options of the classmates put into the Slack channel in their general channel. Because what I hate is when they Slack message me. You might be timid, you might be shy. Hmm. Yes, there is a certain feeling of vulnerability as a learner when you're doing that. But there's only one of me and there's 25 of them. So this is going to grind to a halt if I'm doing three 30 minute sessions, each teaching you how to solve the same problem. So ask somebody else. And that's where you have that spectrum. You know, you've got the ones who are behind, Hmm. the ones who are ahead, the ones in the middle. And one of the things that I need to do for the ones who are ahead so they don't get bored is help somebody up, help them up the hill, but don't hold their hand. Mm-hmm. And I promise you that you will understand the concept way at a higher level if once you've learned it, you then teach it to somebody else. Because Absolutely. Yeah, because now you have to frame it in somebody else's worldview, in somebody else's mental model. And that's Mm -hmm. the reason why rubber duck works, is because you're now framing that problem to a different person. This person, it's not an actual person, but you're now piping that logic from your frontal lobe to, I don't know, the parietal lobe, wherever the hearing is, into language centers. And you've now just reflected the same problem inside your head by talking out loud. Mm -hmm. And that's why it helps to have a rubber duck. And that's why when you teach somebody something you've just learned, you'll know it forever because you've had to frame it in somebody else's mindset, in somebody else's worldview. And bam, repetition, I don't know what it is, but there's something about cognitive psychology where that just works. And that's why I love hiring my own students. Like my current co-instructor is one of my grads who just graduated in April and yeah, I, I think it's a good way to go. But yeah, going back to your question, like that that's the thing is like employers don't want to hire somebody who's going to be constantly asking for their time. They're not going to hire somebody who's going to go into Slack and say like, hi, Tony, and then nothing else. It's like, dude, this is an asynchronous mm-hmm. messaging app. <laughs> Why are you waiting for me to be online at the same time as you just... Like give me some code tell me what your problem is while i'm out for lunch so that i know that you're not stalking me as soon as i get back from lunch it's that kind of stuff but yeah it's those things that that's my job like you know that's our job as a boot camp is to teach them those skills so that they are learning on their own and they don't suck the resources until they actually need them and then it's not sucking resources it's actually proper use of resources but You know, that's the whole point. If you're just getting the answers from somebody, you're not learning. You're not becoming a programmer. Programming is problem solving, right?
1: Not at all. In medicine, they have the philosophy of learn one, do one, teach one. And you're not considered a doctor until you've done all three steps on every procedure.
0: Yeah. Is that like the shadowing thing, right? Yep. When,
1: When it comes to being a lead developer, teaching is actually one of your key critical skills. And if you've been promoted to being a lead developer and you have no idea how to teach... Welcome to being a junior teacher. <laughs> so Tony, you've already given us some advice on how to teach. From that perspective, what kind of advice would you provide to lead developers?
2: If you were going to like teach somebody, like in that other scenario where the lead developer and...
1: Yeah, if you're the developer that is responsible for answering those questions and teaching the junior devs how to level up, what kind of advice would you give them?
2: I go a little bit next level, I would teach one of your intermediates how to teach. <laughs> and delegate.
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> 10x, here we go. Step yeah. one, delegate. Right? Yeah,
2: okay. that,
0: that's how you network, man. You, you start your own networking group. <laughs> mm-hmm. So <laughs> I can think back. I think this really relates to, to pairing. And that's how I think of this problem. I think that the more that I've paired with colleagues at my workplace, the more I've learned. And by proxy, the more I've had to teach to other people and since i started my job over a year ago we've had developers become quote-unquote full stack meaning that we've had a lot of back-end developers churn front-end developers and that has required myself and some other colleagues who have previously specialized in front-end to impart our knowledge on those back-end developers now churned full stack and so having to teach sessions and Zoom meetings where we would go through some of the inner workings of our framework and and the way that our internal system is built. And that would require us to teach. Uh, I think that's a skill that a lot of us don't have, especially even as quote-unquote senior developers. We just don't have that yet because we've kind of locked ourselves into our own silos in terms of we know our workflows, we know what works, we know how to solve problems. When we come to those problems, we generally don't need to reach out for help because we just know pretty much how things work. Maybe that's being senior level right there. I don't know. But anyway, I think that pairing is so, so important. And for me as a developer in a large enterprise, I think that's the perspective that I take on it as if you can't pair with somebody then how do you expect to do rubber duck programming? Like rubber duck programming (laughs) is just the precursor to pairing, really. And then teaching is the strongest version of that because you are literally, your job is to teach. Whereas pairing is you're solving a problem together. So I do think there's a hierarchy of challenge in terms of imparting knowledge. And it might start from the rubber duck programming and move into paired programming and then finally move into teaching, which I think you do, Tony, which is why I think We look to you for this answer. What do you think makes sense in terms of how do you impart that knowledge in a way that you come off as competent, but you also, you're not holding their hand and you're giving them enough leniency so that they can learn at their own pace and not feel like you're taking over everything for them. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned before when
2: we were mentoring and we would be mentoring CSS and stuff, and there would mm-hmm. be a, a line in front of you, and there wouldn't be a line in front of me. <laughs> uh, and there'd be a line in front of Pat and there wouldn't be a line in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because I don't give away the answers. I'm frustratingly vague. Mm-hmm. And not because I think it's a better way of having them learn, it's just that I was busy checking my email damn it like (laughs) like, my hourly rate is like man if I'm not checking my email this isn't worth it no I'm just kidding but that is the the side effect (laughs) if if I'm ever in a mentorship situation when I'm at a table with multiple mentors I'm always the last pick I make sure that I'm the last pick Mm -hmm. and Hafiz is the first pick yeah because uh, Hafiz God bless his heart he just loves teaching and there's two reasons why there's a long line Number one, they don't like what I'm going to tell them. (laughs) And number two, he will spend like 15, 20 minutes with that one student on their one problem. And he will just impart all of this knowledge and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's because he's a natural teacher. Yeah. But as a mentor, there's a difference between teaching and facilitating. So when you're teaching, you're an instructor. You know, you're actually doing the lectures and you're facilitating but as a mentor you're only facilitating your job is to again help them up but not hold their hand and sometimes as a teacher you have to hold their hand like you have to basically like this is an attribute this is an html attribute
1: what's an attribute (laughs)
2: yeah what's an attribute it's an attribute name that's an attribute value and you, you really have to hold their hand quite a bit. And that's a sign that they might not be cut out for the program, you know, which is fine. But then when you're a mentor, you're facilitating, you're there to help them along on their journey. And they get to choose their journey. If they're more intermediate, if they're getting a little bit out there and they have those questions like, huh, okay, I got this. Now I could go this route or I can go this route. Which way do I go? Give them the answer. They're at the level where they're now in the Mm -hmm. divergent path and they're asking for a convergence of their options. Now when you have somebody who's a beginner, they number one if, if you haven't given them any options or having trouble getting from point A to point B, you have to remember that the goal is not point B, the goal is the line between point A and point right, B. Right, that's and so if, easy to if forget. If you give them point A, you've just robbed them of that line, of that journey. They've now learned nothing because you don't learn through your ears and eyes, you learn through your fingers. So you you mm-hmm. have to give them a flashlight all right, why don't you look over there? (laughs) Give them a flashlight. And they get to walk over there, and it's now their journey. Mm -hmm. And maybe they find it, maybe they don't, and they'll come back. Maybe they won't. Who knows? I love that metaphor. But when I do that, that means that, like, if I'm the only one there, yeah, they'll come up to me because I'm their only option. But if (laughs) if it's me versus somebody else who won't do that, everyone will go to them. And I'm just kind of like... Yeah, everyone's kind of worried about me because I feel bad that nobody likes me. It's like, no, this is awesome. I get to finish my emails. (laughs) Mm.
0: I think it's so easy just to get in that trap as a mentor. Uh, Just coming back to my experiences, I can't count with my fingers how many times I'd look at a student's HTML and I would see a form and there would be an input without a label. And I know that the goal of the assignment isn't to get corresponding labels and inputs but it's a giant pet peeve of mine and it's something that I really care about. I'm, I care about accessibility. So for me, it was the hardest thing to do to not say anything and say, oh, by the way, shine your flashlight at that input element. There's no ID or you didn't wrap it in a label. That was so hard to do. And oftentimes when I would do that, the student would come to me and say, oh, I'm just so frustrated. Can't you just tell me the answer? I've just been working on this for the last 15 minutes. Can you please just tell me the answer? And I think that's what you get right, Tony. You know that it's not about giving away that answer. It's about letting them figure it out and giving them just enough that they can continue on that path of discovery to find the solution. And then they get that moment of, oh, yes, finally, I figured this out and I didn't need them to give me the answer yeah
2: in that in that case there's uh I do a couple things one of two things I will either uh, work on search strings like how, your search terms you know what what because a lot of those are really just the fact they don't know the terminology so if you don't know what you're searching on you can't find the the results mm, right so yeah. I, in that yeah, case I, think, I would like yeah. in your in your search bar uh search for accessible forms <laughs> And it'll be, uh, uh, you know, MDN or W3 schools. Other one will be fine in that case. And that's as far as I'll go. Accessible forms. And mm-hmm. maybe uh, I will... Um, that's the flashlight. Yeah. And that's if, the flashlight. Yeah. yeah. And if they're having some problem, I'll actually just copy and paste that link and I'll put it as a comment in their code. When I, right. when I notice when I notice mm-hmm. that they don't have a label, I'll put it right in there. and that. But that's like basically me beating them over <laughs> <hand> with
0: it. <laughs> Yeah, that was the hardest thing that was so hard to do that was like honestly the hardest thing about that job was keeping my head in that mindset and this is senior level too because when I was junior when I would see something that I was like this is wrong there's tabs over spaces I don't know there's a space before the self closing HTML tag we should get rid of that like I would just you (laughs) know like completely reformat we didn't have Prettier, but we had IntelliJ and all the other editors you could just do that right away and I remember making like merge requests and like as a junior I was just like This is how it should be. (laughs) Like, this is the way that you should write your code. And uh, I was just so cocky. And like, I think I thought I knew everything. But that's the thing. When you're junior level, you just want to do everything. You want to like fix this one thing and fix that space and that comma. But that's not your job, right? Your job is to do this one task. You have an exercise maybe in your curriculum. You have an exercise. You have to do that thing. Your job is not to have labels and inputs associated, even though that's a good thing to do the exercise declares certain requirements and you must satisfy those requirements. And that's that senior level because senior level means you satisfy the requirements and you don't do anything else until at the very end. And then you can go above and beyond once you've finished the assignment. So that was the hardest thing for me getting into that mindset of maybe like intermediate senior level and imparting that knowledge on the students that it's not the end of the world if you don't have forms correctly done. Those are the bonus marks. The real marks come from just following the curriculum and doing exactly what you're told to do. And then you can shine that flashlight on exactly what the student has to do. That's, I don't know, you seem to be a little bit uh, disagreeing here, but that's... Oh, no, no. Oh, that's just my, uh, that's
2: my uh, bitch face. Sorry, (laughs) asshole face. Asshole face. Resting asshole face. But yeah, going back to the mentorship, the reason why a lot of experienced senior intermediate devs have trouble mentoring is because they just love solving problems. And it's the hardest thing to do to mm-hmm. just go in and solve it for them because, you know, just like, oh, you know, I love solving the problems. And when it's a certain cohort or a certain school, that's totally fine because, like, you know, the point is not to learn. The point is to get a job or to actually just get this problem solved so they can work on other things. But when you're in the learning aspect, the boring problems are the ones you just see right there. But when you're actually like, oh, that's an interesting error. And you kind of want to just take the keyboard and just do searching. But you have to actually stop and help them through the problem-solving process of like, is it a syntax error or is it a logic error? You know, and you have to ask them that. You know, you know it's a logic error, but a lot of times they won't distinguish between that. And you have to like take that taxonomy and, and go down that road. And it's so hard to do that when all you want to do is just like, I want to look this up, but you have to draw it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to let them understand why we're looking this up, and they say, "Okay, this is a logic error." So that means we can't just copy and paste an error. We have to. What are we gonna do? And you have to. You know, you want to put a console log right on line twenty three. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. but no, they need to know that they have mm-hmm. to put a console log yeah. on line twenty three and like so much drop in dopamine as you're just like, oh, I hope you get this quickly because I want to I just know. Wanna, more. Yeah, I just want to get this. <laughs> yeah. I just
0: want to do this. <laughs> is it an object or an array?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Type of. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much for coming on this show. Thank you, Tony. We all really enjoyed having you on. And of course, we will put your link to the Discord. It's called PixelsYYC, P-I-X-E-L-S-Y-Y-C. That is the name of the Discord channel and you can find links to all of the things we've mentioned in the show notes thank you so much for listening guys i look forward to seeing you guys on the next season of web perspectives thank you guys so much for listening I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Web Perspectives. This concludes the final episode of our first season of Web Perspectives. Now, if you have something interesting to share with us, please let us know. We are taking proposals for people who want to come on the show. I look forward to seeing you guys in the next season of Web Perspectives. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time.